Shangri-La Dialogue, Social Change in Thailand, and Major Economic Instability in Laos. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tranhutis. Today is June 23rd, 2022. On today's show... He's craved and has always craved the legitimacy of elections without actually wanting to put himself at risk. That was Dr. Sopal Ear, associate professor at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. He sat down with Greg Poling, Elena Noor, and another special guest, Charles Dunst, who's an adjunct non-resident fellow with the CSIS Southeast Asia program, to talk about the direction of the U.S.-Cambodia relationship, as well as a white paper that Greg, Charles, and I wrote uh, last week. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Karen Lee in the studio. Karen is a Southeast Asia associate at McClarty Associates, a strategic advisory firm, and is also a former intern with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Karen, how would you grade your time here at CSIS? Oh, I constantly tell people that CSIS was my favorite internship I've ever done in D.C., and I highly recommend any young listeners to apply to the internship. Um, but thank you so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan, and I'm really jealous the podcast didn't exist when I was an intern. Great. Thank you. I mean, I'm I'm sure you're not just saying that because I'm here in the room. Definitely but, but. not. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, uh, let's get started. So two weekends ago, defense leaders from around the world gathered in Singapore for the annual Shangri-La Dialogue to discuss, well, you guessed it, defense. The summit featured dueling speeches from U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and China's Minister of National Defense Wei Fenghe, as well as a meeting between the two on the sidelines. Karen, what are any key takeaways that you might have gathered? I think, as your framing indicates, much of the Shangri-La dialogue was shrouded in the tensions between China and the United States, especially over Taiwan. And while the two defense officials sparred over that in their public speeches, they also sought to establish guardrails to the U.S.-China relationship in their hour-long meeting. There was mention of a crisis communications working group and other lines of communication between both top leaders and theater-level commanders that can be used to de-escalate any crisis in the region. Secretary Austin highlighted what he called an alarming increase in the number of unsafe and unprofessional encounters instigated by Chinese planes and vessels against other countries and that the United States would stand by its allies, which of course includes the Philippines. Right. And I think to that point, much of the media commentary following the summit has focused on tensions surrounding Taiwan, which I think they rightfully have to be sure. But it's also important to highlight that this discussion also has applicability in Southeast Asia, in which there are several U.S. allies, and it also could be a flashpoint for any potential future conflict. So for now, though, it seems like statements from both officials indicate that, at least in principle, both sides want to avoid conflict. Definitely. But that's not the only thing that's happened in the region these past two weeks. That's right. Yeah. So in the spirit of Pride Month, we wanted to include this story. The parliament in Thailand passed four different bills on same-sex unions, bringing the country closer to becoming the first Southeast Asian country to legalize same-gender marriages. These four bills will be deliberated on by a 25-member committee who will then send whichever ones they approve to the House and Senate for two additional reviews and readings. Any bill will then need royal approval before becoming law. And while the country has a highly visible LGBTQ plus community, members still face major barriers and discrimination. 
It's no surprise then that demand for marriage equality became a major theme at Bangkok's first ever official Pride Parade held earlier this month. That's definitely very exciting news. But it's also worth noting that some Thai LGBTQ plus activists have criticized some versions of the bills, which essentially create separate legal categories for LGBTQ plus individuals and would prefer the civil code to be amended to be more inclusive. Activists say that by creating a new concept called life partner instead of the traditional legal category of spouse, it could lead to discrimination by various government agencies and make it harder to make progress on issues beyond marriage, including things like adoption, joint welfare benefits, taxation, medical consent where a partner is incapacitated, and surrogacy. That said, the fact that there is progress is something to be excited about. Definitely. And same-sex marriage is not the only thing being legalized, Karen, in Thailand. Thailand made headlines this week for becoming the first Asian country to legalize marijuana. The Thai government hopes that allowing the public to cultivate and commercialize cannabis could help supercharge the economy, generating as much as $400 million a year. The public health minister even launched a plan to distribute 1 million marijuana seedlings to households across Thailand as a kickstart. While usage is restricted to medicinal purposes at this time, and to be sure you could end up with a fine if you get caught smoking publicly, Thailand's decision will almost certainly intensify future debates on Southeast Asia's drug policy, which as a region tends to be quite strict. Very true. Moving on to Myanmar, the military junta has announced that it will execute four political opponents under bogus charges of terrorism. This has drawn international condemnation. Nicholas Kumjin, head of the UN's Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar, said that these planned executions probably amount to war crimes. Cambodia's Prime Minister Hun Sen also made a personal appeal directly to junta leader Min Aung Lang to stop the executions, arguing that it would further isolate the junta and present future obstacles to restoring peace. His appeal is significant because it is not typical for Southeast Asian governments to make commentary on each other's internal affairs. Yeah, and it's especially not typical for Hun Sen, who speaks often about the importance of this principle of non-interference. In economic news, Laos is currently experiencing some financial instability. The value of the Lao Kip is currently down 36%. The country is facing annualized inflation at 12.8%, which is its highest rate since 2004. Karen, what has the Central Bank of Laos done to address inflation? Well, Simon, the Central Bank actually banned residents from holding foreign currencies in an effort to manage the volume of foreign currency entering the market and prevent further depreciation of the KIP. The bank will also be issuing special bonds with high interest rates to reduce cash circulation. Dwindling cash reserves and surging inflation? That sounds familiar. Yep, these were the same circumstances that pushed Sri Lanka to default in April of this year. Couple that with rising food prices and fuel shortages across Southeast Asia, and you have a recipe for a potential crisis. The government has recently formed a high-level task force to address these mounting threats, and they also increased the monthly minimum wage. Really? Yep, the minimum wage moved from about 72 U.S. dollars to 86 dollars for private sector employees. The Lao Ministry of Labor and Social Welfare said it was a bid to keep pace with the rising cost of living. Yeah, well, you know, I hope during these times of inflation that this can bring some measure of relief. And those are the headlines. Thank you so much, Karen, for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Up next, Greg, Elena, and Charles discuss creative new ways to break some logjams in the U.S.-Cambodia relationship with Dr. Sopal Ear, Associate Professor at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. Super excited for that interview, so stay tuned.
Hi, everybody. Welcome back for the latest episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm Greg Poling with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS, and I'm joined by my intrepid co-host, Alina Noor of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Hello again. And today we're going to be talking Cambodia. So we are joined by Professor Sopal Ear with the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. Hi, everyone. And Charles Dunst, who, in addition to being a non-resident affiliate with our program here at CSIS, is also with the Asia Group. Good to be here. So the reason we're talking Cambodia this week, among others, is that Cambodia just had its commune elections, the equivalent of of local or state elections uh, over the weekend. And it's the first time in a few years that there's actually been more than one party on the ballot. So I'd like to first turn it over to Sopal and Charles and hear how the elections went and what we think it means for the future of of Cambodia. Sopal, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, Well, so the elections were pretty predictable in that it was um, a landslide victory once again by the ruling party, the Cambodian People's Party. And it's been true of virtually all the previous commune elections. Uh, And in the previous commune election uh, in 2017, there was the main opposition party, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, which garnered about 40% of the vote that time. So now apparently, if the numbers don't keep changing, uh, the ruling party this time got about 74-ish percent of the vote. And so that means that non-ruling parties got about a quarter of the vote, which is actually really good. And I think the Candlelight Party, which is the successor party to the CNRP, uh, got about 18% of the vote or so. Uh, and that's much more than one would have hoped for, given how much pressure they've been under and how much intimidation they've suffered. So it's not all bad news in terms of democracy in Cambodia, but it's it's definitely not where it was in 2017, because what the ruling party has done is to turn back the clock to 2013, when the opposition at that time had about this much in terms of slightly, slightly more, but it couldn't really get itself to the to the level of even 2013 but it's it's not hopeless if they'd had less than 10% i would have been very worried charles you spent quite a bit of time on the ground as a journalist in cambodia monitoring previous elections what do you think we saw this year and what does it mean going forward the notable bit was even though the candlelight party took somewhere around 18% they managed to take only four of the commune chief positions out of uh, I guess 1,652. So not much of the most powerful position that was up for election. And they took about somewhere around 18, 20% of those for commune counselor, which is a lesser position, but but not an irrelevant one. So I largely agree with Sofal on that, you know, it is hopeful to understand that they did manage to get somewhere around 20% of the popular vote. But clearly the CPP was pretty careful about limiting them from actually obtaining tangible power in that they're only going to have four commune chief positions, according to preliminary results. I think that was one thing that I noticed. And secondarily, that voter turnout was pretty low comparatively. It was somewhere around 78%, I think just under that, which is the lowest in several election cycles, which to my mind speaks generally to, I think, the resignation with which Cambodians increasingly approach politics following 15 years-ish of relative contestation. I mean, I don't think the elections are ever free or fair, but there was an opposition that did manage, as Safal said, to have around 43, 44% and kind of put pressure on the CPP. And of course, it has not been like that since 2017, uh, to say the least. So it seems like people are voting because they feel it is 
their duty to do so, but there's a clear resignation and a clear decline in participation, which is clearly unfortunate for anyone focused on Cambodian democracy. Greg, I'm going to tee this up. So I have a question for both Sopal and Charles, and then we'll get to the white people. So they say that all politics is local. What does this mean? What, what do the results of the commune elections mean for Prime Minister Hun Sen's legitimacy and, and credibility, especially when he's interacting with foreign leaders? Right. Thanks, Alana. Uh, I, I think that he's craved and has always craved the legitimacy of elections without actually wanting to put himself at risk, right? So his ruling party saw that the opposition over the years grew in power and the reaction increasingly was has been to limit that and to dissolve the main opposition party through legal means. I mean, basically, he controls the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court Chief Justice is a Politburo member of the Cambodian People's Party. But as to your question as to uh, all politics is local, it is local. I mean, it, it, in the sense that services that reach people on the daily basis will be not in Phnom Penh, but rather at the, at the commune level. That means that the idea of these commune elections when first introduced about 20 years ago was the, the notion that people could elect their local representatives, their local virtually board of supervisors type of equivalent, and that they would then be able to somehow enjoy better governance in that way. Uh, the reality, however, has been that the ruling party always knew that at the local level it was strongest. And so all the numbers that have ever come out of the commune elections were never nearly as competitive as at the, at the national level, where there was really a chance of taking over, or maybe even they did win. But as you know, this, the Stalin quote goes, those who vote decide nothing, and those who count the votes decide everything. And that's always been the game in Cambodia. The ones controlling the, the counting get to announce the results before anybody even knows any, any better, really. And I think the interesting question here is if, if you had a fully free and open election in the commune elections, it is fully plausible that the CPP could actually win, as of all noted. I mean, they do have a, a reasonable amount of legitimate public support owing to the fact that, you know, Cambodia has been one of the fastest growing economies in Asia for 20 years. That does not mean that the public, I think, is overwhelmingly supportive of the CPP. But in these localized elections, when people think, which person, which party has delivered for my family, who has made life better, the CPP does earn a little bit of legitimacy from that. So that's an important point. And then secondarily, when we're thinking, as you, as you asked Alina, about how Hun Sen uses the elections to kind of approach international leaders, I think he understands that another Potemkin election like 2018, when the CPP wins every seat, is just not wise for public relations reasons. It would open up Cambodia to further criticism, essentially allowing Western publications, as they did back then, to declare Cambodia a quote-unquote one-party state. If you are seen as a one-party state, it's going to make it harder for you know the United States or for the European Union to engage you just for political reasons. So I think there's a clear attempt here to at least have a little bit of democratic legitimacy. But to me, the, again, the fact that the CPU was allowed to win only four seats reflects to me some concern in Phnom Penh of some kind of concern in the CPU of allowing fully free and fair elections just because there's clearly a fear of repeating 2013 or 2017 when the CNRP made substantial gains and put Hun Sen under 
reasonable pressure. So there's this facade of democratic competition here that I don't think is going to do Hunsen necessarily any favors in Washington or Brussels, but it does make relations with someone perhaps like India a little more, a little easier. And Prime Minister Hunsen, of course, was in Washington recently for the uh, US ASEAN Special Summit. There have been criticisms about US policy towards Cambodia. Greg, you, Simon, and Charles recently put out this white paper on exactly that topic. Do you want to walk us through what it is that Washington has been getting right or what it hasn't been getting right? Well, the reason that we decided to write a Cambodia white paper now was because, as you said, Hun Sen was coming to Washington. Cambodia is the chair of ASEAN this year, and we have this cycle of 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 over-the-top panic, it seems at times, about Chinese naval access to the Riem naval base in Cambodia, all of which has suddenly raised the profile, right? And Cambodia is getting more attention in Washington the last couple of months than it has has in years. And for me, that's somewhat highlighted the the problem that we really haven't had a clear and consistent Cambodia policy in my mind for almost a decade. I mean, the, the history here, as, as Sopan and Charles have already highlighted, has been one of democratic decline or regression really ever since the 2013 elections when the CNRP, the opposition, very nearly won. Maybe they did win. I mean, there's credible reports certainly within and outside Cambodia that, that the election was stolen. And eventually that leads to what the 2017 disbandment of the CNRP and the establishment of de facto one-party rule for the last five years. And Cambodia has been punished pretty severely by the U.S. and the European Union for that. Um, the recent trade restrictions from the EU, arguments on the U.S. side that we should restrict trade, uh, you know, not um, uh, confer- reconfirm Cambodia's status under the general system of preferences. We've had multiple rounds of sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act or GLOMAG targeting human rights and corruption violations in Cambodia. And yet we also keep trying to engage. And we have an ambassador certainly on the ground in, in Cambodia, Ambassador Patrick Murphy, who I think believes that engagement is more productive. And so it, it very much seems like you've had two contradictory competing U.S. policies. And we just can't decide, really, how much does Cambodia matter? Are we willing to give Cambodia a pass on these issues like we do other states in Southeast Asia? Or do we just want to grind Hun Sen's regime into the ground until he eventually leaves? And maybe that was sustainable over the last decade before Washington came around to this consensus that we're in a a great power competition with China for influence all around the world, but particularly in Southeast Asia. Now I think we have to make up our minds a little bit. And so the argument that I make and and Simon Tranhudas makes and and Charles makes, so I don't want to speak for Charles, is that you don't have to like Hun Sen. Um, You probably shouldn't like Hun Sen. You certainly don't have to embrace him and try to give him more legitimacy. But these focusing wholly on diplomatic isolation and sanctions is not effective. It hasn't, in any appreciable way that I can tell, affected Hun Sen's regime. It hasn't brought Cambodia any closer to democracy. And it has, if anything, forced Hun Sen closer to China, closer than I think he actually is comfortable with. I also think, and, and Simon wrote a very good section on sanctions in the, in the white paper, arguing that in a sense, we, we are undermining the legitimacy of the broader U.S. sanctions regime under Global Magnitsky because it's very clear that some of the sanctions we've placed on Cambodia in recent years that we've said are about corruption are not about corruption. They're about China. When you're only sanctioning those Cambodian officers or companies that are engaged in Chinese-funded potential military use projects, 
then you're making GLOMAG a tool of your competition with China. You're not making it about corruption and human rights at all. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the most striking pieces of your white paper to me as a non-American. I'm really curious to get Sobal's thoughts on the white paper, but I, I also wanted to ask Charles to be a little provocative if I may. You know, was this white paper a consensus document? I think largely it was. It took some discussions back and forth, both I think with the three of us and then with other, other folks. But in the end, I think it largely was. I think we generally agree on the basic presumption here that US, the US has had no real effective Cambodia policy for over a decade, that this approach of kind of sanctioning Hun Sen into oblivion theoretically has not worked for a variety of reasons. And it's not going to work that if the goal is either democratize Cambodia or make Cambodia a partner or drift Hun Sen, pull Hun Sen further from China, the current approach is not going to do any of those things. And I think our goal here is basically to say, having this ill-defined policy that has no clear end goal in mind does not feed a productive relationship with the country. And of course, I don't think any of us, as Greg said, like Hun Sen or would like Hun Sen to you know, be in power for the next 30 years as he's been for the past 36 years. But clearly at some point you have to deal with the country as it is rather than how you want it to be. And I, I would say that, you know, in terms of where policy has been, I agree. Look, it's, it's schizophrenic. There's a sense of, on the one hand, these GLOMAG sections, and on the other hand, this engagement. And so we should get our ducks in a row. But, you know, I, I think I, I, the, the quibble I might have is in the idea that if one were to look at corruption and sanction everybody that's engaged in it at the high level in Cambodia, it would be everyone. It would literally be the entire leadership of the ruling party. Everyone in the ruling party could be listed in there. As far as I know, GLOMAC sanctions have been you know, used fairly sparingly in that I can probably count a dozen, a dozen names and there's, they're done in this selective manner. And I, I understand that the Treasury Department doesn't have this kind of willingness to just throw a bunch of people in the basket here because they, they want to know, does this person actually, or this, does this entity actually have U.S. assets or does business in U.S. dollars? And, you know, if, if, if it's not going to have any effect, then why bother, right? I mean, I understand the bureaucratic argument as to let's not throw sanctions on people who actually won't suffer from them. But at the same time, there's symbolism in doing it. There's meaning, and especially for those who believe in democracy and, and also don't happen to love China in terms of its involvement in Cambodia, that it's a signal that's sent in terms of we just don't approve of what's happening. Now, of course, is it a China thing or is it a democracy thing? Do we have to decide or is it going to be actually both? I don't necessarily disagree with, with that. I guess the problem I have is the inconsistency of the sanctions regime. I think we've undermined whatever power we think there was in the messaging. By one, we're clearly treating Cambodia differently than we are many other countries with similar levels of corruption and kleptocracy. Um, and we're doing it, I think, partially because Cambodia was such a disappointment personally to so many in the West, right? After the heavy involvement of the US, Europe, and the UN in the Paris Peace Accords and the setting up of uh, you know, post-Vietnam occupation Cambodia, to see democracy crumble is, is a blow not just to the democracy in Cambodia, but kind of a legitimate, it's, it's a blow to the legitimacy of the UN uh, system that was set up. And two, Cambodia has not been seen as important enough to get a pass, frankly. I mean, there's lots of other countries who are more strategically located and larger, and so we turn a blind eye. 
including some of Cambodia's neighbors. So in that sense, the, the hypocrisy is, is problematic. And then in recent years, you know, we, we kind of, we muddled through, I think, after the democratic decline became terminal post-2015. And then all of a sudden in 2019, the U.S. realizes that, hey, the Chinese seem to be building uh, upgrades in Riem Naval Base and getting some kind of special exclusive access. And in the meantime, another Chinese company affiliated with the PLAN is building what's probably a military-grade airstrip up in Dar es And this is a problem. And now all of a sudden Cambodia matters because of China. But we still are just going to reach for sanctions. And so the last particularly two rounds of GLOMAG sanctions, the one against the Union Development Group that targeted the Dar es airstrip, and the one against the commander and, and a few others of, at Riem Naval Base were so clearly China targeted that it, I mean, it's really hard to look people in the face and say, these are about corruption. Because you could look at any other project in Cambodia, as Opal said, and find as much or more corruption. The only difference is that this had Chinese money behind it. And I, you know, it hasn't stopped Riem. Um, it hasn't stopped Aris Accor. Just this week, we had the groundbreaking ceremony by Chinese officials, the Chinese ambassador um, and, and the Cambodian defense minister down at Riem. So all we've done is, I would argue, call into question the real purpose behind Glomag. We've forced Cambodian elites into a level of dependency with China that some of them at least probably are not entirely comfortable with. And we haven't slowed down this Chinese access that we're worried about at all. I think we'd be far better off engaging and trying to invest in the long-term health of civil society and opposition groups in Cambodia while still engaging the Cambodia that we have. And as much as some might not like it, Hun Sen is relatively young and healthy still by the standards of strongmen. He's not going anywhere barring some calamity that we can't foresee. And he's just changed his birth date to what he claims to be his real birthday to make himself younger since his brother passed away and had a fake birthday, as, as all Cambodians seem to have, including myself, because we don't actually know our real birthdays. But, but yeah, I, I agree. Look, I, I think the whole Glomag use under Trump, when those particular sanctions, that round of sanctions you mentioned happened, were nakedly about China, right? And, and so when you talk about human rights accountability, and it's about an airstrip that Union Development Group is building that you don't want, and there's corruption involved there, that does take away the whole human rights aspect to it and makes it nakedly about China. Perhaps they should have simply used the non-GLOMAG designation of SDN or, you know, there's, there's other ways of doing it, but they reach for that. And I won't defend anything Trump did anyway. So it's, it's just simply another one of these things that was thrown in. Although I, I appreciated the fact that Cambodia was on the radar screen of the Trump administration in so far as, you know, all of the entreaties that Hun Sen made with Trump to be chummy and buddies with him didn't seem to fall on any kind of ears with the White House. He didn't get an invite to the White House as he did as chair of, of ASEAN this year. But yeah, that, the photo ops were relatively few, it seems, that it was no uh, Oval Office meeting in that sense. But yes, I know. It's not perfect. And I will say that consistency isn't the forte of American foreign policy to begin with. So it isn't exactly disheartening to see that. I mean, like, okay, I, we come to expect that. We see all of the inconsistencies about treatment of really horrible regimes and embracing them sometimes. In this case, they're not embracing it. So I'm happy with that. I keep saying that Cambodian lovers of 
democracy still have friends in Washington, D.C., and that's better. That's more than I can say about other countries that aren't really, you know, that, that for the U.S. at least, it's not about saying anything about democracy at all because they'll just ignore that entire point. There's an illusion in the white paper about what the future might hold, right? And so far, I just talked about the inconsistencies in U.S. foreign policy. Is there going to be consistency in Cambodia's foreign policy with potentially a new generation of leadership after Hun Sen? What's that going to look like? Charles? There's this interesting question of whether or not Cambodian elites are aware that they've probably aligned their country too closely with China. There definitely is that awareness among some, and I would argue the mid to semi-senior levels of the bureaucracy, but Cambodian policy is made by Hun Sen, and the question remains, does Hun Sen know that? Is he aware of that? I would argue yes, already, to some extent. You've, you've seen a fair amount of outreach coming from the new Cambodian ambassador in DC, trying to get meetings with the White House, trying to get meetings with think tank folks to basically make Cambodia's case and push for, for engagement. I don't think they're under other, they're under any illusions that the relationship is going to become warm and fuzzy anytime soon, but they are aware of the need to better diversify their ties in no small part because the majority of their exports come to the United States and that removing them from GSP, from the trade preferences scheme, would be really, really damaging economically. So even though you haven't seen that generational shift already, you're seeing a little bit of a push from Phnom Penh for better ties with the United States. And the fact that Hun Sen pushed personally for this US ASEAN summit when a bunch of other, other ASEAN leaders were just not as you know invested in it. They were much more kind of, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Kun Sen very much wanted the Washington visit. He wanted the White House visit after 30-something years of being denied it. So it's both this personal thing of after the United States and the West has kind of taken a hard line to him for, for over 30 years, that he wants the personal respect of being engaged by the West. But it is also practical for the variety of reasons, both economic and then social, because the majority of Cambodians in Cambodia still prefer the United States to China overwhelmingly. There is rising anti-Chinese sentiment, while as the United States retains an overwhelming amount of popularity for a variety of reasons. Maintaining relatively positive ties to the United States is, is pretty key, I think, on that, on that point. And when you think about generational issues, if Hun Manet, his, his eldest son, eventually does take over, there is the minor potential, I would argue, for somewhat better relationship with the United States. I mean, he did attend West Point. That's can't can't forget that. And clearly, you know, like the United States for uh, on a personal level, at least. But the question is going to be if he manages to get in power, what does that regime look like? It's really hard to imagine him maintaining the same amount of power that his father has. He's not the same personality as his father. He does not kind of get, have this garner the same respect from CPP elites. And this is the classic problem of sons trying to take over for their strongman fathers everywhere. It rarely happens easily. I mean, it, democracy, first off, democracy rarely follows the end of a hereditary autocracy. And when these hereditary autocracies continue, they often crumble relatively quickly. I mean, there are a few exceptions in recent years, as in Syria and North Korea, but it's very hard for a father to pass down power to his son. So the question will be, if Hun Manet manages to actually keep power in a moment of transition, if Hun Sen is out of the picture for, for whatever reason, it's an interesting, it's an open question as to what that regime looks like. Does he kind of lean more on CPP elites who wanted power for themselves and kind of govern a little bit more by consensus? Or does he lean 
even further to China basically saying, I need your backing so I can have a stronger regime on my own. That assumes a lot of things. That assumes he gets, he gets into power in the first place. But I would argue that Cambodia is trying, whether or not it's Hun Sen or Hun Manette, will try to have somewhat better ties with the United States and will try to vaguely better balance Beijing and Washington. But Washington does not seem open to it as of yet. They seem willing to engage Cambodia out of necessity and only practicality when it comes to the ASEAN summit. I mean, that's the only reason Hun Sen was invited. So it, it, you need partners on both ends. And I don't think you have an interest in Washington right now. And I, I would add that Hun Sen's side on, on Trump's side, they're engaging at least the top two lobbyists in DC, K Street firms to, uh, to help them. I mean, they they want to pay the kind of money that would end in, in results, showing that Washington, D.C. is not going to do sanctions. They really don't want sanctions. In fact, I'll tell you a few years ago, when I spoke at another think tank, the ambassador got a call, the Cambodian ambassador got a call around or an, an email at 2 a.m. that he had to address immediately, which was, this professor is coming to speak about sanctions. You have to stop him. And the only thing he wanted out of me was, do not use the S word. Absolutely not. And and he was bemoaning that to these friends of his, saying this professor here is, is coming in and speaking at this H foundation. And then they said, oh, he's our in-law. So so then he was like, oh, great. You, I have an in now. I'll t- you tell him to stop using the, to not use the S word. That's really the, the main thing that they were interested in. And all these lobbyists that they're hiring at 60000 a month on retainer, are all about that. And why do you think they have meetings with Washington state senators? Because in Cambodia, they're utterly confused as to whether these are actual U.S. senators or state senators. They don't know the difference. They don't know any better. So that there's this parade of state senators they're meeting with from the state of Washington that they want to, or even former senators, who cares about current sitting senators? But they want to show Cambodian people that they're having meetings with senators. And nobody knows better in Cambodia that these state senators have absolutely no power over, over U.S. foreign policy or sanctions or anything of the like. So, you know, there's, there's the real negotiating and then there's the sort of pretend negotiating. Really quickly on that state senator point, I remember I, I wrote about that when that happened. It was really interesting in both Khmer language news and then the US, the English version of Cambodian news, it never said the word state senator, it just said Washington senator, which is confusing to anybody, let alone Cambodian or otherwise. But yeah, there's a clear intention to invest in the appearance of positive ties of the United States, which is part of the reason why, you know, the photo op of Hun Sen at the White House is not unimportant. There's a reason why, despite Hun Sen clearly preferring China to the United States, that photo was all over his social media. It was blasted around kind of Cambodian Facebook and all that. So that's, there, as Sofal says, there is the practical means of negotiation of really just trying to get sanctions lifted and somewhat keep the investment flowing and all that. And then there's the pretend negotiations, as he said, of basically saying, yeah, we have all the support from these heavy hitters in Washington when it's precisely the opposite. I'm afraid we have to leave it there before our producers grab the opera hook. We didn't even get a chance for Charles to get up on his soapbox about how we need to forgive the La Nol era debt, uh, which is probably something that we can all agree on. But go read the white paper and you can see all about there for now. Thank you so much, Charles and Sopal and, of course, Alina. And most of all, thank all of you for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.
again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. This is only Southeast Asia Radio's sixth episode, so please subscribe and give it a rating and even write a review if you're so inclined. Tell your friends about it. Laurel Vibetson is our producer. Our interns are Nikki Arcado and Hazen Williams. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Simon Tranhudis. And I'm Karen Lee. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for the next episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Thanks, all. Thanks.